2: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. 25 years ago, anthropologist Hugh Raffles's two sisters died suddenly within weeks of each other. Soon after, he writes in his new book, I started reaching for rocks, stones, and other seemingly solid objects as anchors in a world unmoored. Ways to make sense of these events through stories far larger than my own. Stories that started in the most fundamental and speculative histories. Geological, archaeological, histories before history. The Book of Unconformities is his meditation on the unlikely human stories unearthed in some of the oldest things in the earth. Manhattan marble, the Cape York meteorite, Icelandic lava, petrified whale blubber and the questions these objects raise about the very nature of anthropology and memory itself. Hugh Raffles joins us from his home in Manhattan, which rests upon the Marble Foundation so prized by the Lenape people who once lived there. Thanks for talking about rocks with me, Hugh.
3: You know, thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: So this is a really big, ambitious book, and it covers a lot. A lot of human history, a lot of rocks, and a lot of big, thorny questions. But I thought maybe we could just start with the title. Could you explain what an unconformity is and where the inspiration for the book really came from?
3: Yeah, it's a geological term for a gap in the geological record, the point at which two layers from different and non-sequential time periods would meet. So in effect, it's a hole in time. Um, And the question that it raises, what's gone from between those layers? What's, what's missing? What's not there? So to me, thinking about it, because I'm not a geologist, so I'm really thinking of it, I guess, primarily metaphorically, it becomes a, a site that generates speculation and imagination. So in that sense, you know, I came to think of it as a, as a metaphor for all of geology, archaeology, history, and memory. <laughs> if that's big enough, you know, it, it points to the limits of evidence and to the inevitability of narrative to fill the gap, you know, that, that, that ah, this is, this is so universal in generalizing, but, you know, I want to say when we're, when we're confronted with, with an absence, what, what happens is often is that it just gets filled with narrative, gets filled with stories and, you know, it just generates that, the whole just creates all this, all this energy, I suppose, all this narrative energy.
2: Where did your fascination with stones begin? I mean, when I think of the study of geology, at least as I've experienced it, visiting various national parks, it can be somewhat lifeless and impersonal. And we don't always get the full story, the the human element and the memory that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So did rocks always seem alive to you? Did geology seem like something that your anthropological Uh background prepared you to write about?
3: (laughs) Mm, Not really. And I mean, you know, this is, you know, it took me, I spent about 10 years on this book, so... It's a long complicated story in a way how it how it evolved and how it how it the book bu- the book that I arrived at at the end is very different from the one I imagined when I first started but i but I guess to explain it properly, I should say that about twenty years ago, two of my sisters died unexpectedly in unrelated events within a few weeks of each other and you know as I write in the book, I became very interested in rocks at that time, and I hadn't really paid that much attention to them before. Um, Although, you know, I was one of those people who always picked up stones on the beach and that sort of thing. Um, I got very interested in rocks, but not especially in geology, but in, in the objects themselves. And looking back, I think it was their hardness and solidity at a time when, to be honest, everything else really seemed to be falling apart for me. And... Since then, I've written two books, one about people transforming rivers and landscapes in the Amazon, and the second one about people's connections to insects. And it was when I was writing the second one, I, was, I did some fieldwork in China for a small project on fighting crickets, and I started meeting people who collected and traded in what are often called scholars' rocks. They're often collected in China and across East and Southeast Asia and they're often valuable commercial objects, they're often very beautiful aesthetic objects, and they're also philosophical objects. And the conversations that I had with people there made me see a way into writing a book about stone, which was something that had been in my mind for a long time. And I guess none of the fieldwork, I did quite a lot of fieldwork in China, but none of it went directly into the book, but it provided, I guess, the foundation and conceptual framework. Because the more philosophically minded people that I talked to often related to rocks either through Confucianism by which a stone provided this very concrete model or metaphor for an upright life, you know, moral and unbending to political winds, persistent, solid, that sort of thing. Or else they related to, or sometimes even at the same time related to stone through Taoism. In which a stone would be more of a contemplative object, a focus of meditative attention, um, something transcendent, and you know, depending on your your level of cultivation, it it would be a, it could be a vehicle for the dissolution of the self into the cosmos, something like that. And so I think it was because of this, and then also because one of my sisters lived next to the standing stones at Callanish in the Hebrides, which are very famous standing stones. Um, complex, Stones became this anchor for me to make sense of the impact of personal loss in my life. And also, I think, to understand that loss isn't only personal individual, but is always also always social and cosmic at the same time. So, you know, it took a long time for all that to sort of sediment into a book and to figure out how to turn that into a book. But I think those were the, the elements that came together that, that let me write it.
2: Yeah. I mean, as you're talking, I'm noticing all of the stone metaphors that you're using foundation, sediment, it's everywhere. (laughs) And I think that rocks do have this association with permanence. But what I love about your book is just how much space you devote to loss, because this is the flip side of the coin, right? And it's that big historical loss that you're talking about across peoples, across continents, across whole cultures. So, sorry, this is a somewhat obvious question, but. How do you write about loss when you're dealing with what's left over and wrestling with the absence in a geological or a historical record, looking for people or traces of people that aren't there anymore? Yeah, I mean,
3: it's a, it's a great question because it's one of the central questions of the book. And I think because of my, my inclination as, as an anthropologist, I'm very focused on, here's another, here's another rock, rock metaphor, I guess, but I'm very focused on the concrete because i'm interested in thinking through concrete things even though this is such an abstract question the answer to it becomes becomes very precise in some ways it's it's less about a sort of general abstract answer to the philosophical question than it is to exploring those that question in very specific circumstances so my way into this in, in the book was through these i mean in a way individual case studies of these of these different different situations and different events, each of which was situated around or generated by rock or stone in some way. So a rock or a stone sort of became the central object.
2: But I think that raises a really interesting question, which is, there are obviously a lot of rocks and minerals and stones in the world, and you cover such a huge range from pebbles and shale and little bits of sediment to bedstone and meteorites and things not even of this world. And a lot of the rocks that you talk about do have a personal connection to you, like the Kalanish Standing Stones where your sister lived, and you live now above the marble running through Manhattan. But some of those other connections are a little bit more obscure. And I have a feeling that you could have found stones for pretty much any kind of story because there are so Mm -hmm. many. So exactly, (laughs) what drew you to these particular stones in the book?
3: Oh... You know, this is so mysterious, isn't it? I mean, in a a way, they're the the stories or maybe the stones that do what you need them to do within the context of the book. I mean, I'm looking for certain kinds of things, like the relationship between personal loss and mass loss or individual death and mass death. And the book sort of has this arc which goes from personal experience of loss in my life to then thinking about how all large-scale loss that includes genocide, is composed of individual losses as well, but those tend to get those tend to get lost in in the telling of those things. And so, for instance, the story about Greenland—that's a historical event in which Robert Peary, and a a, um, a polar explorer associated with the Museum of Natural History in New York, travelled to Greenland. He had this long history of this with this particular community or group of communities in Northwest Greenland, but he really. In order to get his um, sponsors to keep funding his, his travel, because what he really wanted to do was be the first person who got to the North Pole, he needed to bring back some like, spectacular evidence of the success of his voyages and the, you know, the continuing reasons to underwrite them. So he brought back these large meteorites, one of them was huge, maybe the largest one known at the time, brought them back to New York. The museum didn't particularly want them. But along with along with those meteorites, he brought back six people from this community, and it's often told as this very tragic story about these people who came. Because it is a tragic story because people died. The museum had no idea how to. They had no idea, really, what they were supposed to be there for. Um, they'd sort of casually suggested that he bring somebody back who they could, they could study for a summer and then take him take that person back on the next voyage, but. You know, he was very much a sort of showman, Barnum and Bailey kind of figure, so it was just all about overkill, so he brought back all these people. And four of them died, one of them died much later, one of them managed to get back. But one of the things that's visible through that is is how, for anthropologists and for for museums at the time, and I'm not sure how much it's changed in many ways, the focus on the natural world included both people and And minerals. There was a sort of collapse of the difference between them. They were just sort of these exotic things to be studied. And one of the things that gets left out of that way of looking at it is that for the people who came, the Inuit people who came, part of it also was an adventure and an opportunity to get away and to see the world and see the world that these Europeans who were coming to Greenland came from as well, um, and to sort of you know, open up the other side of the world for them they 'd been visited by a lot of people over the over the decades anyway, but hadn 't had the opportunity to to go to Europe or to go to go to America themselves, even though there had been this long history of people traveling back it hadn 't been available to these people. You know I spend a lot of time in the in the communities that people came from in Greenland, and there 's a whole way of talking about that history people don 't necessarily remember those people personally, but there are people who are in those families who parents and grandparents talked about them and talked about those events and who have a history of those events that um, that's very present in amongst them and amongst the amongst the community the issues are still very much alive, and that history is still very much alive as a kind of memory so being able to think about minerals and meteorites in in that context then opened up this whole history of museums and anthropology and relations between people as well as between people and rocks.
2: Well, and one of the most evocative stories you tell is where people made the rocks in question. Blubberstone, from the 17th century whaling industry at Smirenberg and Svalbard. Which is, correct me if I'm wrong, the only rock you write about that is not actually a rock.
3: No, and it's my turn. It's not, it's, you know, I made that up. Um, because it's really just this concreted blubber and the blubber gets mixed in with all this other stuff when it's cooked. It's sort of the archaeological residue of rendering the whale oil, oil in these um, cauldrons at um, Smyrenberg and Svalbard. And the cauldrons have all disappeared and instead what you have now is just this this rock. It's probably the spill and the just the, the, the concreted, boiled-down residue of... Oh, all those thousands and thousands of whales and all the labor and all the, all the. I mean, for a time, this was, you know, really, it was the economic center of the world for a short period. You know, it's like way up in the Arctic Circle. I and mean, that's what it was. And that's the evidence. What really struck me about it was it's this concretion of animal, mineral, it's a little bit of vegetable, too, you know, just. And all this history of. of, of capital as well that's, that's in there, so I thought blubberstone is a good term for it. There's something so dismissive about the term blubber as well that seems to just wipe out this this history.
2: Yeah, you're right, and in that vein, I guess I never really thought about blubber leaving such a mark, you know? Yeah. Part of me imagined, I guess, that it all happened on ships or in factories or something and got cleaned up.
3: <laughs> you know, I think Svalbard is a really fascinating place because I don't know, I'm sure there are other places, but I don't know of anywhere else that has had such an intense history of extraction. It's like one thing after the other was just taken out of there, hunted till extinction, and then they just moved on to the next thing. And nobody lived there until, until coal. I mean, some people tried to overwinter there, but basically people couldn't overwinter there. I mean, they tried, but mostly they died if they did. So people would go in during the, I guess, the spring and summer months, take out what they could, you know, and then sell it on the world market or in Europe, and then go back. And when the walruses were gone, then it was the whales. When the whales were gone, then it was seals and then birds. And then eventually they got to coal. And then coal became complicated because of, it became caught up in, well, it was always caught up in geopolitical, you know, geopolitical disputes. But at that point, it really became, you know, you'd sort of entered into the sort of 20th century world around the time of the First World War, and, and it's still, I mean, it's still a site of extraction, although now it's, you know, it's data through satellites and it's, it's you know, conservation knowledge through universities, universe, it is, but it's all about establishing a footprint there. But there are these signs everywhere in the landscape because they have this policy of not disturbing any, anything that predates 1946. So the, the entire landscape is littered with the remains of, of all this history, of whatever whatever it might be. You know, it's like visibly haunted by this history of, these, of the remains of houses, the remains of, of um, whaling stations and rendering places and hunting cabins and all kinds of things. They're like all there. But everything is just slowly, just slowly, you know... Um, Falling apart in the landscape and slowly disintegrating into the, into the ocean. So it's very yeah. Well, very slowly, everything is, you know, entropy, yeah.
2: I think that also raises interesting questions about the discipline of anthropology itself. Since rocks and stones and minerals are things that we've been interacting with for all of our history as human beings across cultures, across continents, and they tend to stick around past our own sell by dates. But as you've said, anthropology as a discipline also has this long history of treating people like rocks and of valuing certain stories and certain yeah. people over others. Of course. And your book, I think, by focusing on such a big universal subject like stones and yet very much on specific kinds of stories about stones. Yeah. Opens up very interesting questions about anthropology yeah. and history as a discipline and how we tell stories about ourselves.
3: Yeah, I I hadn't expected when I started this book to spend so much time thinking about anthropology and writing about early anthropology. There's a lot about 19th century, late 19th century anth- and early 20th century anthropology in the book, both about the way anthropology related to Native Americans in the U.S., to indigenous people in, um, in Greenland and in the, in the North and in the Arctic, but also thinking about, you know, anthropology within museums, which is where professional anthropology in the, US, in the U.S. really began. One of the things I started to think about, you know, which an awful lot of anthropologists continue to think about, is the continuities from that time not just the colonial history of the discipline, but in the way so much of just the, the basic relation of anthropology, of travelling to, traveling to other places, looking at people in other places, and, and writing, coming back and writing about them for an audience that's primed to read those things is, you know, is, is directly arising out of, out of that history. And so the continuity is very strong. So for me anyway, the book became kind of a reflection on that and trying to understand that as a practice Clearly, I'm not the only person who's been doing that. You know, there's, there's movement within anthropology at the moment to try to decolonize the discipline and try to reimagine what the discipline, how different the discipline could look. And one of the purposes of this book, anyway, is to look at the past in order to understand how to repair it, not simply to represent it. Um, there's a, this sort of like set of issues for this book, anyway, around, around history, memory race, loss, materials. And the book is a sort of, an, as I think of it, it's sort of an experiment of putting those things into dialogue through these specific situations. Like set up a problem space for a reader to enter and grapple with a set of problems and try to maybe look at them in ways that they hadn't done before. Maybe struggle with these, struggle with these questions. But some of it also is just about the intensity and severity of these experiences and trying to figure out a way to convey that, to make that at some level real. You know, I have this sentence in there somewhere about, um, you know, we spend so much of our time passing through the world as, as, as if we're tourists and we're not affected by, we're not responsible or complicit in any of the things around us. And part of the purpose of the book, I think, is to try to shift that experience, raise that question of complicity in a very, in a very sharp way.
2: It strikes me that process is really important to you, both as an anthropologist and as a writer. We talked a little bit earlier about your process in terms of finding the stones, choosing which ones made it into the book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you arranged them. Because your book doesn't follow the order one might expect. It doesn't Mm. radiate out from one particular location. It doesn't even go in order of scale. It's not like we move from the tiniest little pebble to bedrock. No, no, no. We start with Manhattan. All of the marble underneath Manhattan. (laughs) 600 years of history or more. So, I mean, what was that process
3: like? (laughs) You know, it it was sort of random. Or actually, I should say, it was really driven by narrative and by trying to create a coherent book. I think, you know, in some ways, you know, the arc of the book is from personal loss to mass loss, but not really, because it starts with all this material about American Indians in New York and the sort of journey west and north and all this kind of stuff, and that particular history, which, which was all about visibility and the invisibility of that history in New York. And so the first question really that, that Rox raised for me in the book was about, was about visibility which was the question of evidence and where you look for evidence to tell a story that you might want to tell, and in some ways the arbitrariness of selecting that evidence rather than rather than other evidence. But, you know, it, the arrangements of the chapters, oh, I can't tell you how many different versions it went through <laughs> before it arrived at that, and there were chapters which which didn't end up in there. So, like, for instance, at the end, I have that short piece about the microprocessing um, factory in Theresienstadt, um, which a relative of mine worked in, and um that was actually the central chapter of the book for a while. it was a much longer chapter it was uh, There was like thirty pages of that, and it was really relentless um very very i mean very, very detailed account of what life was like and based on um people's memoirs and other accounts there's, sort of, there's a lot you can find from and stuff. Um, and that was the central sort of like pivot of pivot of the book which made a shift from something personal to something more. I suppose, on a more explicitly political in a more conventional sense. But in the end, I just, I don't know. You know, the book had many different titles as well before it became, you know, it was called North for a while because it was all about the North and then, you know, something's fitted, something. But in a way, I sort of like the way that nothing fitted and nothing, nothing sort of, it doesn't have that. You know, I feel like it's coherence, but the coherence you know this sounds like such a cop-out I know but I I really feel like it's up to the reader to create that coherence in whatever way they might want to and I and I mean I hope that people do that and find their different ways into it and different ways that the whole thing starts to make sense because because I feel like I could tell several different versions of how it's coherent you know I'm not sure that I necessarily believe I guess I believe all of them but you know they can be different for different people and maybe clearly having so many edges to it makes that, you know, makes that um, possibility clearer for readers, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that's probably a good thing.
2: We have links in the show notes not only to Hugh Raffles's enigmatic Book of Unconformities, but also to some of the specific stones mentioned in this episode. Gongshi or Scholars Rocks, the Standing Stones of Kalanish, the story of the six Inuit who arrived in New York City with that hunk of Greenlandic meteorite, and of course, Blubberstone. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.